there's always this tension between speed and quality, mm-hmm. uh, going fast, right? Because you're burning other people's money. They're typically, mm-hmm. right? VC, angel backed, they're like seed, maybe a series A or B at this point of funding. What? So they don't have the kind of money that, say, a, a large, you know, billion-dollar global mm-hmm. pharma would have to do the the types of research to broadly pick up all those demographics and considerations to really thoroughly design something uh, well for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, what are some of the best ways to think about this upfront as a startup? It kind of balances that speed and quality tension. So I think that you have to balance the ease of getting your minimal viability product out there um, versus your vision. So there's nothing wrong with getting a, a minimal viability product out there with the proviso that you're going to say, we've already thought about X, Y, Z, and with your help, if they're talking to an investor, we plan on doing this. It goes into the elevator speech, but you need to have, you know, product with the elevator speech, not just the elevator speech. Um, but if you anticipate, if somebody shows me a, a product, my wheels are spinning, and I'm always thinking, well, if they can do this, if they can add that, <clears throat> excuse me. But if somebody anticipates my questions, concerns, or comments with, we've already thought about X, Y, and Z, and and we think they're important in the final development. That's an incredible um, piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. with regards to marketing, because you're already anticipating people's questions, pushbacks, and concerns before they even raise them. Welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. I am Maureen Schaefer, your host. And today, we're very honored to be here today with Dr. David Lee Schur, who has been a cardiologist for 30 years. He was the director of cardiac electrophysiology at UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, a Pinnacle Health System for 20 years. Uh, he also served as their chair of their IRB, their Institutional Review Board, and also a clinical investigator for multiple NIH clinical trials. Uh, he's presently at Lancaster General Health, Penn Medicine, and he served on executive committees for the Pennsylvania chapter of the American College of Cardiology. He's been the cardiology representative for the Medicare Carrier Advisory Board and sat on the IT committee of HRS, the Heart Rhythm Society. Uh, he's also been chair of the HIMS M Health Roadmap Task Force and chair of the Blue Ribbon Panel for Haptique. He's also, very interestingly, the first physician in private practice to perform remote monitoring of implantable cardiac defibrillators, ICDs, uh, as a clinical investigator in 2000. We are very lucky that Dr. Schur has served as a consultant, writer, and speaker in both the U.S. and internationally. Uh, and we welcome you here today. Thank you, Maureen. Glad to be here. So I'll ask you uh, three words and just let me know, uh, just kind of respond with what comes to mind. And we'll frame this out 
uh, around kind of like medical devices and digital health. Okay, are you ready? Yep. Marketing. Marketing. So marketing is selling, but it can be selling ideas, selling products, selling yourself. Um, to me, the critical foundation of marketing should be credibility and knowing your audience or your potential customer. Great, great answers. Uh, sales. Sales is about creating a return of investment for the potential buyer. And that can either be cost savings or revenue producing. And there are companies and technologies which do one or the other or both, and they're both potentially valuable to a customer. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Uh, message or messaging kind of in that space. Messaging goes along with marketing, but the emphasis is knowing who you're talking to. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that that is absolutely critical. Uh bonus bonus question, bonus word, uh, or phrase, if you will. Uh digital health. Digital health com, com, it it includes anything in the digital space that pertains to healthcare. And that can range anything from a Fitbit that somebody's wearing to the electronic record to artificial intelligence, which is um, used in uh, computer technologies for diagnosis or treatment. All right, great. So uh, some, I want to kind of roll back. There's some interesting things that, that you said in there. And uh, one of them was you mentioned marketing needing to really know their audience. I mean, who do you think in you know, the med device and digital health space, there are a lot of audiences. Uh, how do you think marketing can best go about knowing and understanding their audience? Like, what have you seen them do? where you felt like felt that that's a best practice and then perhaps conversely where have you seen steps taken where you kind where you reflected on it and said maybe that's not a best practice maybe that's something to be avoided so i i yeah i think that those are incredible um incredibly important uh questions so you're going to message something totally different to a, a healthcare provider or whether it's a system or a specific physician or a physician group or nurses um, or even insurance companies um, mm. differently than you would to a patient. You will have a different message for uh, something that is going to be integrated into the healthcare system versus something that is going to be a commercial product. Um, all this speaks to um, what problem are you solving? You need to solve a problem to be successful. And certainly providers are going to have different problems than potential patients or patients or uh, other B2B or business companies that are involved in healthcare. So the really, the fundamental question is what 
problem are you potentially solving? And that will actually define your potential customer. Great, great point. Where have you seen people be led astray when they're trying to figure out what problem do they solve? There are a lot of companies, primarily startup companies, that are creating technology for the fact that they think the technology is very cool, if you will, um, but they're really not solving a problem. Or they have a technology that solves a problem but doesn't uh, incorporate health literacy or uh, cultural issues where the user experience will be horrible and therefore negates any potential benefits of the technology. So there are different uh, aspects of uh, presenting uh, things or, or even developing technologies. Many companies don't utilize clinicians in the develop or even patients in the development of technologies. And so you're starting off on the, on the wrong foot, if you will, sometimes. You, that's, a, that's a great point uh, about clinician, involving clinicians and patients uh, into the development of, of products um, at the beginning, because I've seen a lot of startups yeah, say, well, I don't have time for that, or that's too difficult to set up an advisory board. Uh, so, and there are other ways to do it. What are some of the ways or best practices you've seen with regards to involving, like what is the right way to involve patients, for example, um, at the beginning of development of a product? Um, a, a lot of companies start a product with an idea that's generated from a family or friend's uh, medical journey or problem, which is noble, but it doesn't directly speak to that journey. So involving a patient mm. or a group of patients, you can, you can actually go to uh, a, a not-for-profit organization and, and, uh, and glean what, they, what services they provide uh, to get a viewpoint on what patients go through or, or caregivers. And caregivers are, are, are a, a very forgotten sector of healthcare that companies don't take into consideration. If you have an older patient, but you have, you know, children who are in that sandwich generation, for example, who are very uh, technology oriented, um, any, any technology that is gleaning data from that patient or providing data should incorporate or have a consideration for caregivers as well. What are, what are some of the ways in which you've seen, because involving patients, involving caregivers uh, can be, is, is critically important, as you point out. Uh, I've also seen it be something that companies, particularly startups, really struggle to do well. Uh, have you, as we think about helping kind of digital health startups or medical device startups, what are some ways you've seen be successful with engaging this uh, kind of patient caregiver audience? And, and for, the, for the sake of this discussion, let's presume, you know, there are no minors involved. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there are different companies that obviously do different things. 
There are companies now, the digital companies that are uh, facilitating the journey through cancer, and they uh, provide uh, help in a, in a digital form or interactive form for patients and caregivers. There are companies that are now able to take electronic record data from different hospital systems that don't necessarily talk to each other and incorporate that data into a platform that a caregiver or, or family member can have readily at their uh, disposal. Um, these are companies that really take into consideration the patient and, and caregiver uh, in a way in which they're, they're profoundly a- answering um, problems and, and barriers that, that patients face in their journey. Uh, one of the things that I, I find often with some early companies is that with startups and medical device and digital health in particular is a reticence to engage directly. They want to go to <laughs> almost across the board. Like, can I, can I just buy a report for $5,000 and can I get everything I need from there? And I'm like, number one, that information is immediately outdated, like by the time when it's published. And it's usually outdated before it's published because they've been collecting it for a few years. Uh, number two, as a startup, you I think there's a need to dive really deeply. You know, you talked about what problem are you solving, which is a brilliant way to think about this. Uh, and that they there's this hesitancy to dive deeply enough to really understand this. Um, I'm wondering if you've seen examples where patient advisory boards work or does it work better at the beginning to have kind of one-off conversations with patients and caregivers and kind of move to focus groups and move to advisory boards or what what do you think works best i'm sure it's situation dependent so sometimes it depends on the technology itself so sometimes the issue is primarily awareness of a problem to a potential customer. Um, So you're not going to solve a problem if people in in general, and and these can be investors, for example, who are not aware of the problem that you're solving or aware of the magnitude of the problem. So awareness of an issue is is critical or awareness of the... um, situation in which the technology is incorporated. I, I saw this early on in, in the early 2000s with remote patient monitoring, which is now, you know, obviously uh, all over the place in a lot of sectors of healthcare. But the, the benefits of remote patient monitoring um, needed to be uh, laid out with regards to financial uh, return of investment with regards to efficiencies, with regards to patient safety, and um, all of these things needed to be to be done. So laying out the foundation of awareness, not necessarily of the um, uh, problem, but even of the the types of technologies is uh, is critical. Um, real, you have to do background research with regards to what companies, uh, providers, and patients, what are they using now 
so that you have a side-by-side -side comparison. Uh, if, if people are using stuff that is really good already and you're coming in as, as a me too kind of product, then you should have a reference as, as, with regards to why are you better than, than what's out there. So this kind of research is, uh, is important. And, and I believe that social media can play a huge role in, uh, in defining what those uh, awareness and, and problem um, uh, situations are at the moment. You don't have to, in this day and age, you don't need focus groups. You can just throw out a tweet to a, uh, a semi-targeted audience and get a lot of feedback um, in a very economic and, and timely manner. So uh, you bring up a great point. Social media is something that, uh, you know, every marketing department is aware of. Uh, do you find Twitter specifically? I know I've seen a lot of patient advocacy groups on Twitter. Do you find Twitter to be a, a uniquely helpful place to uh, potentially engage patients in the conversation and I further identifying the problem? Yeah, I, I think that that Twitter and Facebook um, both are very um, uh, intensive with regards to healthcare itself. And, um, and there are actually companies that look at conversations and, and that's a whole nother, you know, a bit of a can of worms, but, but also an important aspect of, of reality of social media. There are companies that glean conversations from, from these uh, uh, or bits of, from these conversations, and then use them to uh, to target um, potential patients for clinical trials and things like that. So it's a double-edged sword. And and what I found and and what studies have found over the years is that people are willing to throw uh, some healthcare data out there much more readily than say financial data if they're going to benefit from that. And, and there are many companies out there that are using social media to, to benefit patients uh, potentially. Got it. That's great. That's great. That's great. Uh, are there any specific places on Twitter or specific groups that you think would be a great starting point if people are at the beginning of their research and in understanding more deeply the problem they're trying to solve around patients specifically? Or caregivers, for that matter. There is um, there is a, a group um, that's uh, heavily um, uh, represented on Facebook called the Society for the for Participatory Medicine, or S four PM. It's also on Twitter. There's a group on Twitter which is not necessarily for um, patients, but it's also for providers. It's it's uh, Hashtag HCLDR for healthcare leader. And, and we have a, a tweet chat every uh, Tuesday at 8.30 Eastern time, which is incredible and really raises issues in healthcare that range from equity to, um, to for example, you know, the plight of, of immigrants in, in the war that's going on now in Ukraine. Um, and and it's it's very cool because it's it's obviously global, and there are people who chime in from all over the world. Sometimes, you know, real time at the um, at these events and, and things. But um, 
yeah, I, I think that, that, and there are a lot of other groups. So suffice to say, you can just um, search for either a, a, a type of group or, or disease entity that you're interested in. Great, 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 great. Let, let, kind of last question around uh, around that and around Twitter and specifically. Uh, I found in social media that each social media platform, be it Facebook or Twitter, or LinkedIn, Instagram, et cetera, has their own kind of language and their own, what's the right way to phrase this, their own kind of rules for participation. You know, if industry wants to engage with with patients, caregivers, and we'll, we'll get to providers, <laughs> uh, what's the right way to go about, you know, in, in a tweet chat for folks who haven't done it before from industry to potentially engage in that? And, and or what are some of the things to avoid? So I think the main thing is really staying with focus on the problem that you're trying to solve. So mm -hmm. if it's a disease entity to, to really concentrate on disease awareness and, um, and how, how you fit into that, but much later, really just creating a discussion to generate credibility, to generate trust and to um, generate empathy, uh, both among the, uh, the, the people that are, in that conversation, which could be hundreds or thousands, um, and just stay sort of in the background and see what that question or comment generates. Um, and then to uh, really organically have people seek you out uh, once they once they know what you do and, and what you're offering. Yeah, great advice. That's great advice. Listen, kind of watch and observe, see how it goes, and then... Uh, focus on disease awareness and and the the problem at the center as opposed to trying to pitch your stuff. Yeah, I mean the best the best commercial, if you will, or or marketing mm -hmm. is really to have people want to know more about what you do, and that doesn't even have to be in that same session. It shouldn't be actually. Um, I remember the, the best marketing campaign I ever remembered was Viagra. Uh, and, and for many, many months, you know, you saw billboards on the blue pill and, and there was this whole buzz around it and nobody even knew what it was until it came out. I thought that was fascinating. It, it built up a lot of kind of suspense, right? And exactly. interest and intrigue around that. So, yeah. There's no need to directly pitch. Uh, I think uh, a more recent example of that is potentially, uh, I watch the Super Bowl to watch the ads. <laughs> I'm a marketing person, like through and through. Uh, I don't know if you caught the QR code ad at halftime. Yes. Yeah, like bounced around like an old video exactly. game yep. on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and that goes back to infancy when you have the the uh, the uh, mobile the mobile on top of the uh, on top of the crypt. <laughs> <laughs> we only knew why we were responding to it. Exactly. I remember looking at it for like thirty seconds, and I was like, "What is that?" And then I told my son, "Go capture that. What is that?" It just kept going, and I couldn't take it anymore. I had to know what it was. 
So glad to know that my infancy is serving me well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So great. So we have some very specific, great advice from you about Twitter, engaging patients on Facebook, advocacy groups, uh, caregivers uh, specifically. Let's roll a little bit to providers, and since mm-hmm. we're talking about social media, kind of stay, you know, stay with that from a mm-hmm. kind of in problem solving and marketing standpoint. Uh, there are a lot of different places to engage providers potentially, from platforms like Doximity to more B two B like LinkedIn, you know, or a little further afield on Twitter, for example. What have, when you've been, you know, when you've been approached or you've seen other people approach, what's the, what's the right way to engage providers where should startups and med device and health tech engage providers? Um, is social media the right way to do it? I mean, it used to be go stand, well, in the surgeon, you know, or cat, you know, cath lab, EP lab standpoint yeah. was, you know, go stand at the sink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I remember those sink pitches. I really... <laughs> I I had double you know double feelings about that uh, or ambivalence I should say it was great because they were meeting me in a time and place that I had three seconds or three minutes I should say of standing uh, still uh, when I wasn't really focusing right. on anything else um, I much appreciated it if it was relevant to the case that I was doing. Uh, or cases similar to that. Um, but I think, I don't know about social media with regards to selling to providers. I believe that, again, increasing awareness about what you are offering uh, with regards, again, to solving a problem. <clears throat> so right. it depends on what type of problem you're solving. If you're, pro- if you're solving a workflow issue, then I don't know if, um, uh, if if mass marketing is appropriate. In other words, to bring that to maybe a chief medical information officer of a hospital, um, something like that. And that's that's a whole other conversation, obviously, about which foot, you know, where do you put your foot in the door? And and that's that's what a lot of people do mistakenly, and then think that they're failing, but they're just not speaking to the right audience or potential champion in that organization. Um, so with regards to providers, I think, and you know, you're, the other thing is if you have a problem that is seen mostly by nurses, you know, going to a chief medical information officer or a chief medical officer who's a physician is not going to be as, as fruitful as potentially speaking to an audience of uh, a professional nursing society, if you will. Um, it doesn't have to be in person. Um, and I realize that a lot of startups don't have a ton of money to go to conferences or things like that, which are actually less important now than they used to be. But I would say creating an advisory group um, of professionals is a real good investment because then you're getting it from from the uh, horse's mouth, so to speak. The problem with some advisory groups, though, that I've been in, um, 
is that many members of the group are really thinking of this as a provider themselves. They're not putting on their corporation hat and imagining what is best for the company um, or ways in which the company can do things. They're just looking at themselves and saying, what would I want? Um, so you sort of have to balance those two uh, viewpoints to, to, to be a good advisory member. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. You talked about, I'm going to go back to like, what problem are you solving? And you, talk, you just spoke about, for whom are you solving it? Like, is it a problem the physicians see? Is it a problem the CMIOs see? Is it a problem the nurses? You know, who's, who's the direct kind of observer and recipient of that uh, who would potentially want it solved? And, um, and the last thing you want to do is to solve a problem and make somebody do more work or do the work, quote unquote, for you. And that's, that's a problem that is, is monumental these days in healthcare. So that, you know, if you incorporate something, um, let's say a, a platform that makes remote monitoring easy, but the physician has to go to three different screens to look at it, it's, it's going to be a disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Time, time is money <laughs> in that particular time case. Time is sanity. Yeah. That? Time is sanity. Time and sanity. Uh, great point. There's a, right, with the information exploding in that, there's enough to keep straight without having to do additional, throw more heaps of work on Well, that. I mean, also it speaks to, to burnout. I mean, you know, the more things you have to do uh, because somebody, you know, didn't make life easy for you is, uh, or that it's useless kind of stuff. So specifically with regards to remote patient monitoring, the biggest concern that providers have is I'm going to get deluged with all this useless data that I'm going to spend a lot of time looking at. And therein lies the value of, of artificial intelligence. So mm -hmm. that if you have an offering that is providing data, you very well need to have artificial intelligence to, to filter that. So do you see that's a, that's an interesting way to think about AI and artificial intelligence as relieving potentially I'm like reading between the lines here. So tell me if I have this incorrectly, uh, but to unburden physicians or other providers uh, from having to remember or do, or it's kind of shrink potentially depending on the AI and what it's solving for, but it has the potential to shrink the workflow is. Well, it, it also has implications for patient safety. So for example, you don't want to treat a patient who has one high blood pressure in the office. You want to see what their blood pressure is running over time. You mm -hmm. don't want um, alarm fatigue in the hospital with all these bells and whistles going off because you have a great technology which can detect something. But what you need in addition to that is a layer of artificial intelligence which really uh, hones in on and dampens that kind of uh, super uh, response, which may actually be erroneous. I think, yeah, it's interesting to think about because with the a lot of chatter around really like primary care physician shortages, nursing shortages, kind of amplifying over time, what are those intermediate steps that AI can help triage essentially 
so that they're only potentially elevating the most important things to, for example, you know, in an ICU or CCU setting, uh, the appropriate things to nurses or physicians or respiratory therapists or whomever may be monitoring the patients. So I think that, that, yeah, I, 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 I think that in a way AI is being utilized in care, but it is not integrated um, with the workflow. So for example, I see many patients who go to the emergency room and you see the way the emergency room physician thinks about things, but it is not in a standardized or uniform way. And I'm not proposing that we transform you know, people into robots, but when you speak about artificial intelligence, if somebody is going by guidelines, for example, to potentially have that automated, um, a, a, a huge place where artificial intelligence can be beneficial, which I've spoken about for decades, is incorporating that into discharge planning for patients from the hospital, knowing and anticipating that somebody will need a durable medical equipment and to have that automatically ordered and waiting for the patient when they get home or prescriptions that are waiting for them or um, appointments that are already done. These are things that simple artificial intelligence can do. It's been seen in business and finance all the time. Um, You know, how does something get to our doorstep when we order it from Amazon the day before? So, you know, these are very um, basic things that can uh, help healthcare that um, have been used in in other sectors for decades. And healthcare, I, I understand why things go slow, but they're, in my opinion, too slow. Lots of room for improvement. Correct. So, lots of opportunity for companies. True, true, true. I think that I think the AI and kind of deep learning, machine learning that is really interesting because there's always that discernment. There's a lot more than just, like you said, following the guidelines. Whether it's you know the NCCN cancer guidelines or you know if the ACC or HRS puts out guidelines, uh, they're guidelines. It's like guardrails. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Doesn't mean you don't independently think other things and observe it as a whole, uh, which I think is uh, sometimes missing in medicine these days. Yeah. Well, it's missing a lot in in one sector and that's in the the payer sector. Mm -hmm. And I speak to insurance companies every single day, you know, appealing, uh, you know, requests for tests and procedures that are denied based on a checkoff list and, um, uh, you know, which are, which are done by non-clinicians. And then I wind up speaking to a clinician for 10 minutes or 10 seconds and, and it gets approved. So yeah, AI can be used on the business end as well, uh, whether it's billing, whether it's uh, authorizations and, and things like that. So companies who solve those kind of problems are, are really um, solving as, as, as important problems as clinical problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, it's interesting, the idea of uh, discharge planning. I kind of wonder in logistics, I, I think of Amazon as primarily, there are many things, but they're far and away like Medline or Cardinal, right? A, a logistics company. 
yep. in a lot of ways. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, I, I, where it's interesting because we see this kind of CMS, right? The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services putting out this waiver right at the beginning of beginning ish of COVID uh, to say there are certain circumstances under which your inpatient patient in the hospital. Uh, may be appropriate to be monitored at home, cared for at home, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So this whole idea of hospital at home yep. or acute hospital care at home. And then there's home health kind of as it's always been. Uh, patients like being home. From the research I've read, generally speaking, broadly speaking, patients would rather recover at home. Uh, and they do better at home. That's been do great. they? Yes. And it seems that it helps unburden hospitals a bit. Uh, it has a potential to lower health care, the cost of health care eventually. Although right now they're paying kind of DRG rates. Right. <laughs> but. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think this, I think, not, not necessarily hospital at home, but care at home is, is imperative uh, for mm-hmm. a number of reasons. It'll decrease hospitalizations, which are actually much more costly. It, it's, a, it's a huge issue for patient safety and well-being. You will have less um, medical errors. You will have patients who are less stressed and and have less uh, mental health issues. Um, nobody who goes into the hospital and is there for more than three days will come out the same person. Their medications will be different based on the fact that they were in an artificial environment. So then you have to change things when they get home. That happens every single day. Um, patients' med- mental well-being is is different. People are prodded and and poked at two, three, four in the morning. They get no sleep. They come home. They're they're in bed for three days over a weekend because nobody can do physical therapy. So there are many many uh, potential advantages of of being at home. Having home care at home is good for the patient, and it's it's also good for the caregiver who doesn't have to do all the work and and therein lies the the financial implications of caregivers not going to work and and things like that. But people knowing that they have good care at home don't have to be in the hospital. I mean, the knee-jerk reflex for every clinician now when a patient calls in with a problem that's more than uh, a very superficial one is to go to the emergency room, which is an extremely uh, costly endeavor. Urgent care centers can do what they do, but they can't do a lot of stuff that the emergency room does. So th- this whole thing is a natural progression. Other countries in, in Europe and, um, and Australia have embraced this tremendously, and, and hospitals themselves have uh, decreased in number dramatically in Europe, uh, 25% over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and, and the consolidation that's coming in this country is not driven by that as much as it is uh, from a financial uh driven standpoint and but it needs to be uh, decentralized from these large healthcare systems into the community but more importantly into into people's homes a lot a lot to talk about in yes. there that yes. <laughs> you just brought up uh, yeah the, I think the idea of at-home care the the consolidation right so kind of home health and how that's morphing 
the logistics around that with DME, the durable medical equipment and prescriptions, the shift from in-hospital to out-of-hospital or at-home care. And I had never thought about that idea of their medications may shift. Uh, I'm familiar. I think it's, is it white coat hypertension? Yes, when they exactly. have When right. people present with hypertension right. in office? Okay. Right. Uh, I was trying to remember the phrase. I mean, there, there's a company now. I'm sorry. There, there's a company oh, now that offers um, point of care blood testing at home. So a home health agency can come take somebody's blood at home. They don't have to go to a lab. Uh, it's much cheaper. Things like there are technologies that home health care agencies use to report in status of the patient and, um, and, and all kinds of things. So digital technologies really are being and, and are, are here and are still being developed to further this uh, care at home concept. What do you, you know, as you, there, there are a few things in there I want to kind of dig into a little bit more. And one is historically, you and I have been in the industry for a minute and uh, medical device, you know, digital health is relatively new uh, and uh, there's quite a bit of money being poured into it. Uh, Historically, the focus has been primarily on providing things to physicians, right? Or to hospitals or now ASCs, et cetera, uh, to urgent care offices um, uh, to be able to help patients. And now as we shift, right? And clinicians have specific training, physicians, nurses, other kind of healthcare practitioners, HCPs have very specific clinical training. When we think about moving and as medical device makers and digital health think about moving into the home, what are some, and we all think about the patient using this, they're using these things, or the caregiver using these things. What are some of the considerations uh, that, that you think we need to be thinking about that we're, that we're not thinking about or we haven't really solved well yet? So there are companies that that I love that solve um, more problems than just monitoring a patient. They do environmental monitoring. So there are companies that will tell you that grandma went into the bathroom and she hasn't come out in 10 minutes, that Mm. the temperature in the house has gone up or down five degrees for 10 days or three days and and, and nobody's left the house. that somebody has opened the front door and not closed it, um, things of that nature, technologies that allow elderly people to simply use a computer that has maybe three icons, one that is family pictures, one that's, um, I'm sorry, um, one that- uh, Nice ringtone. One that uh, contacts a uh, provider or a family member um, mm-hmm. or does a simple Google search. So th- there are companies out there. Uh, it's just that they really um, need to be brought out in the, uh, in the light. And instead of seeing direct-to-consumer uh, pharmaceutical advertising, I'd much rather see this kind of stuff. More that 
environmental monitoring, things that take the kind of broader, which have a broader scope for patient monitoring, not the typical things that we think about being done in a, like, blood, you know, blood tests, taking your blood pressure, measuring your height and weight, right. those types of things. Things right. that indicate that maybe an Alzheimer's patient has gone for a walk yep. and hasn't come back, leaving the door open, right? Or the heat was cut off or... You know, something untoward had happened in that regard. Exactly. Uh, it's a really interesting way to think about because they are all parameters that can tell us things about the patient well-being, you know, uh, the customer well-being, uh, and how they're doing, uh, and where we may need to kind of rethink what we're measuring and when we may need to intercede, when providers or somebody may need to make a phone call, right? So, I mean, imagine if a caregiver had access to their relative's grocery shopping list mm -hmm. when they go to the supermarket and see that they're getting all kinds of um, cakes, candies, and sodas, and they have diabetes. You know, obviously, it's a privacy thing, but if somebody allows somebody to do that, it's, it's a very interesting way of, of looking at things. Right. Or all frozen meals that are high in sodium or, you know, depending upon their background, that could be really, that could be interesting. The other thing about uh, home health is if you think about the reach that um, cable companies have to people, I mean, a lot of people have TVs on all the time. Everyone mm -hmm. has at least one television. Um, and if you can get your electronic records at home and on, on your television, um, obviously all the privacy and, 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 and security things, that's a, that's a huge issue. Um, but in the ideal situation, um, it should be no different than somebody getting into a patient portal, just translating that to the visual on the screen, for example, um, or to have access on that screen to exercises that are specific to your physical therapy, to um, uh, quick click uh, or uh, dialing into a, uh, a physician's office or nutritional information. So to have a, um, a healthcare TV, if you will, that's personal, um, including your record, you know, I think would be fabulous. It's interesting to think about it as we move from trying to think about treating illness, right, to preventing illness mm -hmm. uh, or maintaining health. Yep. Uh, that idea of what you're describing uh, makes me think of kind of a well-being dashboard type of thing exactly. where we're able to see, oh, hey, I was, you know, like I look at my, my Apple Watch, right? Yep. And every morning I open my sleep app and see how I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, imagine starting that in, in, in fourth grade, you know, where everybody has their own, their own health uh, thing and they're tracking their health at that age and they track their nutrition and, and the amount of act, physical activity that they're doing. This is where it has to, this is where prevention needs to start, you know, early on. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and kids now are obviously digital, they're born digital and, um, you know, and they're in an age where you're restricting um, screen time to two-year-olds, 
you know, I don't think it's a stretch to have, you know, third and fourth graders tracking their health uh, on a screen. I think that that's really interesting because when, you know, having done marketing for so long, uh, I end up in, I've ended up over my career in a lot of conversations with people who say, why do you need to do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why don't you just, you know, deliver it over here, do it this way. Exactly. And I'm like, because that's, it's not where they are. Like, why would I do that? That's not where the audience is, or that's not part of their daily routine or part of their daily habits. Or, exactly. Right? I mean, if you want to reach kids nowadays, you need to do funny TikTok videos. But you, you have to, to that point, you have to be where they are. And, and that's the same mm-hmm. thing with any customer, whether it's a, a, a patient, a caregiver, uh, a consumer, a provider, uh, anybody. You have to be where they are. And so, you know, the user experience goes into how easy it is to access your technology, how easy it is to use it, so that when you develop a technology, you need to have an expert in user experience, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So it all comes back to um, the way you develop your technology. What problem are you solving? Who are you solving it for? Kind of where we where we started this conversation. Exactly. Uh, who is that audience? Where are they? And ideally, if it can be kind of rolled into some of their daily habits, things they ordinarily do. So exactly. We're not trying to get them to do things that are out of their ordinary <laughs> kind of daily life. Uh, from a, I just want to go back briefly to, so user experience is very interesting, right? Because that's not something, at least on the med device side, it is part of certain regs that we understand patients and patient experience, but broadly it's the level that, you know, Google or Apple understands user experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen that medical device or digital health overall is, is there yet. Yep. <laughs> um, no, I agree because most, most medical device companies want to cram as much as they can into an app, for example, or to recreate the web page, which is really the complete opposite. Um, simplicity is best when it comes to that kind of stuff. Cultural uh, considerations need to be taken into consideration. So there are very few companies that do things in more than two languages. You know, if you have, if you partner up with a company that can translate something into, you know, 150 languages, and and these companies exist, even in digital health technology, um, you know, you should avail people of that. Um, and, you know, the other thing is people have different cultural um, biases, if you will, with regards to um, uh, how to use something. Uh, people have to be aware, for example, of colorblindness. If you have uh, technologies that utilize different colors to check off different things, you need to you need to consider that. You need to consider people with with vision problems uh, and hearing problems. These are very critical. Um, I have patients that are blind that use certain technologies that are incredible, but other technologies you know they cannot use. Um, and so it's it's these kind of things that go into the user experience. 
health literacy is probably the biggest issue with regards to people actually understanding either instructions or uh, medical terminology, uh, explanations, that, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So um, all of these things need to be considered when, when designing something. That's a, you make terrific points. One of the things that, that I've seen, and I'm curious how you, how you have seen this when it's solved well, and that is, you know, when you talk about kind of cultural, uh, you know, biases, when you talk about, uh, you know, low vision and hearing and, uh, you know, blindness, et cetera, mm -hmm. what, for medical device startups and digital tech startups, I've certainly seen where, you know, they talk to a handful of physicians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is what I'm talking They talk to three physicians who are in the same group who are nearby, belong to an academic medical center, and they think, okay, we've got it. Uh, and then they start rolling forward to find out that's not exactly the case. There's always this tension between speed and quality, mm -hmm. uh, going fast, right? Because you're burning other people's money. They're typically, mm -hmm. right? VC, angel backed. They're like seed, maybe a series A or B at this point of funding. What? So they don't have the kind of money that, say, a, a large, you know, billion dollar global mm -hmm. pharma would have to do the, the types of research to broadly pick up all those demographics and considerations to really thoroughly design something uh, well for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so what are some of the best ways to think about this up front as a startup that kind of balances that speed and quality tension? So I think that you have to balance the ease of getting your minimal viability product out there um, versus your vision. So there's nothing wrong with getting a, a minimal viability product out there with the proviso that you're going to say, we've already thought about X, Y, Z. And with your help, if they're talking to an investor, we plan on doing this. It goes into the elevator speech, but you need to have, you know, product with the elevator speech, not just the elevator speech. Um, but if you anticipate, if somebody shows me a, a product, my wheels are spinning, and I'm always thinking, well, if they can do this, if they can add that, <clears throat> excuse me. But if somebody anticipates my questions, concerns, or comments with, we've already thought about X, Y, and Z, and, and we think they're important in the final development, that's an incredible um, piece of the puzzle with regards to marketing, because you're already anticipating people's questions, pushbacks, and concerns before they even raise them. And so if, if, you, if the customer knows that you're in their mindset already, that, that's a huge issue. That's great. So what I think I hear you saying, I'm just going to summarize and see if I have this right, is that startups can still move quickly towards like an MVP, a minimum viable product, and get that out. But before they do that, that they need to understand the problem and the needs of, you know, patients, providers, caregivers, et cetera, their audience broadly, 
uh, more holistically and know what they're leaving off Mm -hmm. for the moment, but have a a roadmap and a plan to get to those. So they can get feedback early with an MVP, but have taken in enough information up front to know what the roadmap needs to be moving forward once they have funding people, et cetera. Exactly. But that's still different than saying it's going to be in our 2.0 version because that is sort of a, you know, that's that's a negative kind of statement to me because who knows when that's going to be. But if somebody says, we already know that we're going to do this, that, and the other thing, there's no sort of artificial uh, time constraint, whether it's established or not. It's in their game plan and you're happy that it is. That makes sense. So the the recognition of, the understanding of recognition of and planning for it to be a part of it, regardless of kind of when it, when it shows up. Yeah, it's, it's the vision, basically. Right. Okay. Having the vision for what it needs to be from a, from a user experience standpoint. Correct. Based on whomever that audience is. I'm okay. sorry, but I need to go. Okay. Can I, can I ask you three quick questions? Sure. Or one quick question? One, one question is great. I'm, one I'm question? Ready, I'm later ready. Okay. So I could talk to you for like another two hours about this. I mean, okay. there's so much to explore in this, but you've given us some really amazing- I'll be glad to do another one. Okay. And to think about, so I really, I very, very much appreciate your time. Oh, which one am I going to ask you? Mm. What's one thing you wish more people knew about you that they don't know? Um, That I try to be a better saxophone player than I am. (laughs) I did see that in your Twitter profile. That's my, that's my long range goal. That's your long range goal. It's a great goal. It's a great goal. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. If people want to uh, reach out to you or get in contact with you, uh, where should they do that? Um, I have a, uh, my Twitter account is at DLSHERMD, at D-L-S-C-H-E-R-M-D. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Or my LinkedIn. Just look at me on LinkedIn. Take care, Maureen. I really love what you're doing. Thanks, David.